it could have happened like this. A young girl exits her home on a cloudy summer day. She walks down to the end of her driveway, makes a left, and then picks up the pace. Springfield Township is a safe, friendly, family-oriented town filled with tree-lined streets and traffic-free cul-de-sacs. On a sunny day, there will be children everywhere, playing in yards, swimming in pools, riding on bikes. They scurry around like ants at a picnic, and the streets are filled with laughter, shrieks, and the mechanical, tinkly melody of the ice cream man trundling along block by block. It is August 7th, 1972, and the clouds hang over the summer sun, keeping children indoors and out of pools for fear of a sudden thunderstorm. We've all heard that one story about the kid who went swimming during a thunderstorm and got struck by lightning. All that was left was a greasy smudge at the bottom of the pool. Nobody wants that. At 2.30, the heat of the day has come to a head. Coupled with the humidity in the air from the threatening rain, the atmosphere feels dense, like walking through the bathroom while someone takes a hot shower. You can smell the rain coming as soon as you step out the door, which is how you know the clouds mean business. The girl walks quickly as she has lied to her mother to get out of the house. Even though walking down the street was expected of her, she still knows that she intends on breaking the rules, and breaking the rules always makes us hurry. She is wearing a light blue t-shirt, tan pants, and brown flip-flops. She is sweating, and her long dark hair forms ringlets by her temples and at the nape of her neck. Straight hair is the fashion, and the girl has tried to get hers as smooth as possible, but the humidity has other plans. Annoyed by the weather and her sweat, the girl touches her defiant curls, furrows her brow, and walks on with purpose. She trudges along until reaching her first destination. She agreed to meet up with a friend later that day, but found out about a house party that was happening that afternoon. It was on her way, so the girl decided there was no harm in making a stop there first. She takes the three steps leading up to the front door in a skip, and then opens the metal screen door, the kind with the metal curlicues at the bottom and the picture frame shape up top, and knocks briskly on the wooden door behind it. She can hear music emanating from inside the house, and the crack in the door smells of woodsy smoke and aerosol deodorizing spray. She does it once more because she's sure no one heard her the first time. And then a teenage girl with long straight hair and a plastic cup opens the front door in a waft of smoke and sound. Hey, come in, she says, and the girl thanks her and walks through the door. Inside, it is exactly like every other house party. If you have been to one, you've been to them all. Everyone is drinking, mostly beer or shots of hard alcohol. There is a cooler on the floor filled with utility-grade spiked fruit punch. In my experience, it was always red, but my father calls it Purple Jesus because at the time they used grape juice and he was actually at New Jersey house parties in 1972, so we'll trust him and picture it purple. A couple groups of people smoke weed. They are likely in another room or huddled around a couch. There is a table where people are playing games or cards, absolutely no food, and a long line for the bathroom. The guests are usually spread into pockets. Some are gathered around the kitchen counter, some are seated on the floor in a ring, some are on an enclosed porch. Bedrooms in houses with a second floor and finished basements are usually blocked off for 
slightly more serious drug use or sex. Sometimes the master bedroom is off limits altogether. The music pipes through one set of household speakers, so it's loud in one room but inaudible in all the others. Someone has inevitably already gotten sick, and it's more than likely that someone is also laying on a couch passed out. So it's a typical house party. The girl walks through the chaos into the kitchen where three boys stand around the Purple Jesus station. She smiles, they offer her a drink, but she declines, and all of them walk into the living room looking for the weed. The hours glide by, and as the dinner hour approaches, everyone begins to filter out. Their parents will be home at this point and wondering about them soon. The girl who answered the door waves to her last group of guests as they hop into an old Chevy. She closes the front door, and then she transforms from a relaxed party host into a panicked, hyper-aware child. She thunders up the stairs and pounds on a locked bedroom door. It's me, let me in, she says urgently. The lock on the door turns and a boy opens it a crack, sees her face, and then lets her in all the way before closing the door behind her and relocking it. On the bed is the girl in the blue t-shirt. She is very pale, almost gray, unmoving, unresponsive, her mouth hanging open slack. The image is haunting and it seems clear that she is dead. But the other two boys are still talking to her as though she were alive. There is vomit on the bedspread and the floor. What the fuck happened? The party host yells. The boys are beginning to panic as well. One sits on the bed, a hand over his mouth and tears in his eyes. Another is crouched on the floor next to the girl's head. He is talking gently to her, trying to wake her. The third boy paces on the other side of the bed, raking his hands through his wavy, sun-bleached, shaggy hair. For a moment, none of them speak. Then the one sitting on the bed begins to rock a little and says almost to no one, I told her just to take a couple. I thought she'd be fine, but she must have taken more. Jesus Christ, why did she take more? More what? The host yells. Quaaludes, the boy on the bed says thickly. Then the boy on the floor adds, we have to get her to the hospital. The boy pacing stops dead in his tracks at this suggestion. I think it's a little too late for that. She's fucking dead. What? Says the host yet again, barely comprehending this seemingly impossible situation. She can't be dead, whispers the boy on the bed. She just can't be. The standing boy puts his palms on the back of his head and presses at the tension. She's not breathing, Kyle. That's a pretty good indication that she can. Shut up, Paul, Kyle fires back. She's dead, Kyle, says the boy by her head. Shut up, Dave. Kyle says through tears. What do you mean she's not fucking breathing? The host says, letting the tension in her body go straight to her voice box. I've never seen anything happen so fast, Kyle replies. We, we were just hanging out, having a good time. Then suddenly she started acting funny. You know, she was slurring her words and leaning over, tripping over nothing. So we brought her up here to lay down. But she started getting sick, and then her eyes rolled back in her head, and she was just shaking, shaking like someone had her by the shoulders or something. But there was no one there. She was having a fucking seizure, Kyle, Paul interjects, and Kyle dissolves into tears. We have to take her to the hospital, Dave says gravely. They need to take care of this. Call her parents. Do whatever you're supposed to do when this kind of thing happens. Blame us. That's what they're going to do, yells Paul. The party's host drops to her knees and begins to sob. Oh, relax, Christine, they're not going to get you, Paul says in a way so acidic he almost spits it out. 
It's my fucking house, Christine shrieks. What am I supposed to tell my parents? The cops are going to want to know what happened. They're going to want to come here and see the room and talk to my parents, and then I'm fucking dead. They'll send me away to boarding school if, if, if I'm not in jail. It'll be all right, Christine, Dave said. No, it won't, Paul screams. We're going to go to fucking jail, Dave. I already have a record. You might get a slap on the wrist, but I'm doing time. Kyle sinks further into his own lap, heavily sobbing. Nobody's going to jail, Dave yells, and then takes a deep and measured breath. (sighs) He has been the most reasonable among them this whole time, and the break in his demeanor causes everyone to snap to attention. Christine, where's your phone? Dave says, returning to his calm. There's one on the nightstand in my parents' bedroom, she says, almost in a trance. Who are you calling? She follows up. Someone who can make this go away, Dave says. Kyle picks his head up, clearly racked with grief, and interrupts. She's a person, Dave. She can't just go away. But Dave is unyielding. I'm sorry. This is how this has to be, he says, and then leaves the room confidently to make a call. Thirty minutes later, the chief of police enters the house. He is in uniform carrying a weapon. He walks up the stairs and knocks on the bedroom door. All right, open up, he says. Dave opens the bedroom door and looks him in the eyes. The other kids go pale, their hearts thundering like jackhammers. You called the cops, Paul says in disbelief. That isn't the cops, Kyle says. Yes, it is, Christine says, shaking like a leaf. No, it isn't, says Kyle. Dave lets out another long breath, and his shoulders slump a little in relief. Thanks for coming, Dad he says. You did the right thing, son, the chief says to Dave, giving his shoulders a squeeze, before turning to the rest of the room and addressing everyone else. I need every one of you to do exactly what I tell you. You wrap her in that blanket and carry her out to my car. Dave, you'll come with me. Kyle, and whoever the fuck you are, he says, pointing to Paul, I assume you're the one who had the drugs in the first place. You follow in another vehicle. Paul doesn't move or speak. Look at me, haircut. You got a car? I've never met someone who prefers to deal on foot. Yeah, I have a car, Paul says almost in a whisper. Good, replies the chief. We're going out to the quarry. We'll leave her where no one will find her. When people ask, and they will ask, you never saw her. There was never a party, and make damn well sure all of your dirtbag friends know that this day never happened. When they ask about her, you tell them she was trash. That's what the town already thinks. Nobody bats an eye at a dead girl if they think she's trash. She's not trash, Kyle says. She is now, the chief replies. Then there is a silence. What about me? Christine whimpers. The chief squats down on the floor to meet her gaze. Well, my dear, he says, dealing with her more gently than he did with the boys. I think you ought to stay here and clean up. Haircut over there will bring you back the blanket. You'll need to wash it twice. Wash everything twice. Wipe down everything she may have touched. Light switches, cups, railings, doorknobs, everything. And then, you don't say a goddamn word. Understand? Yes, sir. Christine replies. All right, he says before getting back on his feet. Let's go. Kyle, get it together and call your mother. Tell her you're staying at our house tonight. And you, he says once again, pointing to Paul. Make 
whatever arrangements you need to make to be out late. After this is over, get out. I don't care where you go, but you have to leave town. I don't think you're from here, so that shouldn't be a problem, but I don't want to see your face in my town for a good, long time. Understand? Yes, Paul says. I'm sorry, what was that? The chief says with narrowed eyes. Yes, sir, Paul says. That's what I thought, says the chief. Six weeks later, the dark-haired girl in the blue t-shirt was discovered dead on a cliff in the local quarry. Any evidence of someone putting her up there had long since been washed away by the weather. She was surrounded by logs that seemed to form a makeshift cross, and a halo of stones circled her head. It was strangely still and beautiful, fans of ferns brushing the dark hair that now clung to her skull in ragged patches. No one knew what happened to her or how she ended up there. Local teenagers just said she was prone to getting into trouble. They had all been elsewhere that day. She must have hitchhiked somewhere and done too much of something. The town pulled itself apart in the wake of this unspeakable tragedy. Something this dark had to have been witchcraft. How could no one have seen anything? How could no one have known? Well, someone knew, didn't they? They knew, but just like they promised, they took their story to the grave. It could have happened like that, and maybe it did. But remember, there is more than one version of every story, and it's up to you to decide who to trust. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead. back with part two of the strange and unsolved disappearance and murder of Jeanette De Palma. Now, we left you all on quite a cliffhanger last week. I sure did. Yeah. So I'll do this really fast. We're tired and wrinkly and we need a little validation, a hill worth dying on. Yes. So please go on over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really is the only way to move this podcast forward. And if you want more content and other goodies, you can support us over on Patreon. And if you're short on time, you can simply follow us on social media. We are at Would Be Dead Pod everywhere and anywhere. You can like our content, share our content, like and share our content. Leave a comment, post about your favorite episode. Let us know when you're listening. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell the local police chief. I'm not going to ask you what our local police chief's name is, but in our fictional town, what would his or her or their name be? Clint. Clint. <gasps> kind of chilling. I like it. Yeah. In that story, that guy would have been a Clint. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Good one. Then your friends and Clint can become fiends and we can all hang out together. I don't know how much I like that because I'm probably going to be nervous around him, but oh, that's wait. fine. <laughs> yeah, I know. Nothing cool can happen there. I don't think it can, no. No, unless he's off duty. 
And then maybe or he's retired. Gets a little wild. Clint gets a little wild. Oh, retired. Yeah. What if he's a reliable officer? Yeah. Then he's just like living. Yeah. He knows all the secrets. All right, Clint. All right, maybe then like I'm down with Clint. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He just has like a PBR. <laughs> he just like lets it go. He smokes cigarettes. Stogie. Yeah, but no. a, a, like a cigar? A cigar, yeah. Okay, and none of us care even though it smells because we're like, I want to hear what Clint has to say. Yeah. His kids made him stop smoking cigarettes, but he still gets away with a cigar once in a while. That's right. As long as she keeps her pumping him full of PBR, he's going to talk. That's right. Mm-hmm. Oh, Clint. <laughs> I can't wait to inhabit this town. For, I need to write like a like a Halloween Hallmark movie with all these people in it. Or is he more like a Budweiser guy? Oh, you know what? I think you're right. PBR is too hipstery now. He's yeah. Bud all the yeah. way. And not yeah. even Bud Light, just like Bud. No, Budweiser. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Canned Budweiser. Mm-hmm. Aluminum cans all the way. Crushes yeah. them up and puts them next to him when he's done to take out to the recycling later. Right. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. His wife, Barb. Do we already oh. have a Barb? <laughs> Probably. I got to go back and listen and write them all down one day. Or yeah. if somebody else wants to do that, I would love I know. to get Whenever that list. Whenever anybody does a re-listen. Yeah, right. <laughs> just tell it. Just tell us when who what you're listening to and who the member of our town is. Yeah. We would love to know. One day I'm putting them all together. It's going to be great. Okay. So lastly, uh, keep on the lookout for VIF passes to our October 30th live show at Cape May Brewing Company. And we might have another... Um, event to offer you. I'm not sure, but that might be in the works. So keep your eye out for that possibility. And uh, don't forget to work on your costumes if you're coming because ours are amazing. So get get it together. So excited. Me too. And I think that's all I have because I know everyone is eager to hear the rest of the story. But Leslie, I got to give you your moment. Do you have anything to add before we begin? Um, no, I'm good. Okay. Just had to ask. Yeah. I had to check in sometimes. I'm good. You know. All right then. On with the show. When we left off, Jeanette De Palma had been missing for 24 hours after leaving her home on Monday afternoon, August 7th, 1972. She was going to visit with friends in the next town and had said she was taking the train, but never returned home. As day turned into night, Jeanette's parents, Florence and Sal, began to worry and by 10 p.m. they had decided, rightly so, to call the damn cops. The cops gave them the tired response that she probably had just run away, and if they wanted to report her missing, they had to wait 24 hours. I can never say this enough, that is not currently true, my friends, so if someone goes missing, report them right away. Better safe than sorry. The De Palmas then waited in agony before returning to the police office 24 hours later to report Jeanette formally missing. The Springfield police then issued a missing persons bulletin, which said, quote, Mrs. De Palma, number four, Clearview Drive, reports her daughter Jeanette, age 16, five foot tall, brown hair and eyes, 115 pounds, wearing tan slacks and blue top, missing since 10 p.m. 8772. Alarm sent out. The investigation that followed could be called lackluster, but that would be an insult to lackluster investigations. <laughs> yeah. The cops simply assumed Jeanette had run away. They had a cursory knowledge of her family, which we talked about last week, what people in town kind of predisposed them to be. And that led the cops to immediately form opinions. Trashy kid from a big family, probably ran away, probably to be with a boy. And that's all they need to say. So weird because they normally don't just think kids run away. Oh, never. Especially girls. It's like a weird with this case. Yeah, it's so strange. I know. I'm glad it never happens again. Oh, (laughs) man. 
So the cops, I guess, poked around a little bit. There's no evidence of them really doing anything, but I, I'm, I'm going to give them something, I guess. And then they kind of noticed that the De Palmas weren't really raising a stink or talking to the media. And so the police were content to just keep quiet and let the situation lie. So they basically said to the De Palma family, like, don't say anything. You don't want it to get out that the police are looking for her. Then she might get spooked or whatever. Just feels she's going to come home. Now, if this were me, I wouldn't be able to sleep at night. I would need to be looking for this kid. But the cops had convinced themselves that Jeanette would turn up sooner or later when she needed to come back home with her tail between her legs because she ran out of money or didn't have a place to stay or whatever. Okay. If you're willing to wait, fine. Right. I think that it's strange that the police, I mean, if the if the diplomas were not making a stink, yeah. but the police told them, which they normally do, they normally tell you, like, don't go to the media yet because we don't want yeah. specific information out as well. But it's like, that's also why they weren't making a stink. They were listening to the police I think also. from what I, from how I interpreted this, they didn't say that for to the diplomas for a couple days. They just like um, let it lie. And they noticed they were being quiet. So they were like, okay, yeah, let's just keep quiet. And she's probably going to come home. Like I said, I don't, I don't think they did anything. Hmm. So like, it just feels like they were letting them kind of lead for a minute. If they seemed desperate, they would be like, all right, I guess we got to do something. But they didn't. Now, this is the, their older daughter is away at this point, yes, right? She is in a, in a different state in a yeah. 13-month drug rehabilitation program. Right. Because uh, she had been a serious, serious drug mm-hmm. user. I know. So I, I just wonder if any of them keeping quiet was also because their other daughter was away and they just didn't want oh, too sure. much attention. I mean, it absolutely could be. And as we mentioned last time, um, Jeanette's cousin, so that would be... Uh, I don't know if it's on her mother or father's side, ha- their niece or nephew had run away like right. a few weeks pri- right. previously. So this family is marred with a lot of that. And they and the opinion of the town is that just all of the girls are like mm-hmm. that. Now, the cousin had run away, but come back since, right? No, she has isn't oh, back at that was point. Still... She was still, I mean, but she did, did actually run away. Okay. But did they know that at that point? I, you know, I don't know. There's not a lot of follow up on it. They just said she ran okay. away. And then eventually this girl comes home. Right. But this girl okay. was so also So I'd be like, interested to know if they were like aware, like, okay, we do know that she is alive and she's somewhere else. Yeah, maybe. And maybe she'll come home. Or we now have two runaways in our family. Maybe. And one girl in like long-term rehab. Yeah. Okay. It's, okay. Yeah. So by association, <laughs> they're just assuming it's another bad kid, whatever, you know. So all the rumors say that the De Palmas agreed with the police and just waited by the phone. So everything you'll read about them up until this point is like, yeah, they were like, yeah, she probably did run away. You're right. And then they just were like waiting for Jeanette to call them or come home. But that's not exactly true. The De Palmas did search for their daughter. They did go out and hands-on look in their community. They even went all the way into New York City to search the streets themselves. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. They were like knocking on doors in Coleman Streets in New York. Because that was, you know, the place where young girls would run to. Mm -hmm. And they're in northern New Jersey, so it's not that far to get into New York either. Um, But, of course, they didn't turn anything up. New York is not a huge city, but it's full of a lot of people. So Mm -hmm. they're going to just find somebody. But Springfield as a whole, like community where she was from, was basically informed that Jeanette had run away. Everyone was on the same page and that was it. They weren't like, oh, she's still missing. We should be looking for this girl. They were like, oh, this is a girl that ran away. Done. 
That's wild. Yeah, so nobody okay. was thinking that they should be looking for her. No, there was no like. It was like they were, they were told it's confirmed she ran away. Yes, exactly. That is exactly it. People thought this was a fact, and so that they didn't need to do anything. Like usually, when a a child goes missing, there's this urgent searching. There's this sense of like we have to try and find them at least immediately after their disappearance. But that doesn't appear to exist here in her right. town, which is. I can't call it curious because I can see why, but it's disappointing. Right. You know, but there was no proof that she had run away as no one had spoken to her and they didn't know that she was safe or where she was since the day she left to take the train. She hadn't taken any clothing or toiletries. She didn't have any money on her. She didn't have a car. It's perplexing to think that an entire town would just be okay with a teenager in that situation, like hitting the road with nothing and believe that that's what she did. How would she survive? Right. They I just don't understand. thought like some boy liked her to pay for her and like took her away. I, I don't know. I don't know what you could possibly think because my brain would be like, even if she did, she can't live. She doesn't have anything. I know. And she only just turned 16. That's so right. She's still... her, her birthday was like five days before this. Yeah. It, it just so was she happened. a sophomore? You know what She'd I mean? She'd be going like... into like her junior year. Yeah. Yeah. So. Oh, right. Because it's. It's the, summer. Right. Mm-hmm. But I guess back in the 70s, it was easier to just not think about something like that. If the police said that's what happened and the local gossip was that that's what happened, you just went, yep, okay. Yeah. I, it's not my job. But also at this point, well, I guess you'll get into this probably, yeah. but have they talked to her best friends? Well, here's the thing. Um, later, we're going to find out that they do speak to at least one of Jeanette's friends, the police do, but they don't talk to a lot of kids in the area. They just don't. They elect not to. I know that like years later when Weird New Jersey is reporting on this case, which we're going to get to shortly, they try and track down people that they can like kind of confirm were were just like knew her Mm -hmm. or had like been on a date with her or something. And I'll tell you, most of them are dead. Yeah, which yeah, is a while ago. But this is also weird to me because this investigation, like when they're talking about having these interviews, it's about 2012. So these people are in their early 60s, which oh. is not like a clearinghouse, everyone's dead age. Right. It's bizarre the amount of them that are dead, though. A lot of them are. So. What year would this have been again? I'm sorry. This is 1972. No, I know. But the interviews. Like 2000. Well, the first email was sent to Weird New Jersey in 1998. Okay. So then from there, they started researching it and reading about it and stuff. Yeah. And a lot of the, like, finally finding them happens in the early 2000s. Okay. So they would not have been so old that you're unsurprised by the amount of deaths. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I mean, some people say that this case is I mean, cursed, even, like, why. wouldn't they have even been, like, 40s? If they started talking to people in the late 90s, then yes. That's like the initial letter to Weird New Jersey, but it did take some time for them to right. locate these people okay. because there also was no names attached to this case. Yeah. When they were talked to, when they first talked about it, um, I don't even know that they knew her name. It was just yeah. like they found a girl dead in this like witchcraft altar on a mountain. Okay. And so it took them forever to even find out who it was. Yeah, yeah. So I'll say like the early 2000s. Okay. But still, how are they all? I know. Very weird. Anyway. Not much was said about Jeanette after her disappearance. Her friends, thinking she ran away, just waited for her to call. Even her best friend was like sitting there going, damn it, Jeanette, just call me. Like, what's going on? Where are you? They thought she was on an adventure. Her parents searched in vain. The cops did other stuff, I guess. And then six weeks later, they find her body. 
just three miles from her home. Mm. So she didn't go far. And a teenage runaway doesn't much matter to them when she's just gone. They don't have to think about someone who's gone out of sight, out of mind. But when she never left their jurisdiction and turns up dead, well, then they have to think about it and pretty fast. Yeah. Judging by her clothing and the level of decomposition, Jeanette had died the day she left, too. Oh. Yeah. Which means the cops had not done anything to help, even when they could have. And that doesn't look great. Mm hmm. Um, they also will go on after this to be quoted a lot of places as saying that Jeanette's family was very difficult. They say like, oh, the De Palmas didn't want to agree to anything. They didn't want to help us. They didn't want to do anything. But like when you go back and look at what actually happened, there's really no evidence that that was the case. It's just a lot of blame shifting. It looks a lot like, well, we wanted to do stuff, but they wouldn't help us. So we did nothing. Sorry. Hmm. Okay, great. With all that in mind, at this point, now she's dead, they find the body. A genuine investigation was launched following her death, and the results are kind of baffling. Everything that was uncovered in the investigation funnels into one of the following theories. So we talked about their discovery of the body last week, so you guys will remember all of those things that happened. Anyway, so all of that leads the police to think that either Jeanette overdosed at a gathering and other teenagers dumped her body up there like she was at a house party, kind of like I narrated in the opening, and they took her body out to the quarry so nobody would find her. Or Jeanette was partying at the spot in the quarry, so on the Devil's Teeth, where she was found and overdosed there. Then all of the other partygoers, seeing that something had happened, scattered and left her there. Now we know nobody was partying up there. We talked about how hard it is to get up there. It's insane to even think that. But mm -hmm. anyway, they said it. And they cleaned everything up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's no beer cans or anything yeah. after like a teenager party. <laughs> when they all ran, noticing someone had died. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> Run, someone's died. But pick everything up and be very careful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that sounds very plausible. Uh, another theory is that Jeanette was picked up by someone who intended to kill her. So then they killed her. And then they took her back to the quarry to dump her postmortem. Another theory is that a drifter who lived in the quarry ran into Jeanette and killed her and then left her up on the cliff. And the last is that either willingly or unwillingly, Jeanette was killed in a satanic ritual sacrifice. That one. Of course, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Only one of those theories, however, was released to the press. Can you guess which one? That one. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> it is, of course, the Satan thing. Yeah. What else would it be? I don't know. God. In an article in the September 29th, 1972 edition of the Elizabeth Daily Journal, they, um, they first bring up this theory because people are like, where did it come from? This is where it came from. And they do it in an article it's very subtly titled. Like, it's hard to understand why people thought this from the title of this article. Girl sacrificed in which right? Question mark? Oh, okay. <laughs> the article is short, so I'm just going to read it to you. Okay. Quote, investigation into the death of 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma is focusing on elements of black witchcraft mm. and Satan worship. A review of death scene photos, according to reports, is leading authorities to believe the girl's death may have been in the nature of a sacrifice. Pieces of wood at first thought to be at the scene by chance are now seen as symbols. Detectives throughout Union County have been alerted to the possibility that a cult or cult member played the part in the death. A search party discovered her remains. She had been missing six weeks on September 19th in a wooded area of the Hudai Quarry atop a 40-foot cliff about 400 yards from Shunpike Road. One searcher said two pieces of wood were crossed on the ground over her head. More wood framed the body, quote, like a coffin. 
Another person who was there said, quote, I guess if you were looking for signs, there they were, end quote. <laughs> That's like, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> like, but truly, that was all the public needed. My gosh, that sounds like an article written by Rita Skeeter <laughs> from Harry Potter. Just like at the end, it would be like, and now we're looking for Harry Potter. Except I give Rita Skeeter more credit than that. <laughs> I think she would do a better job. I mean, if yeah. you're going to sensationalize it, do better than wherever you go. There you are. Like, yeah. That's, that's terrible. <laughs> but again, it was that was all people needed. They don't need a lot of details. They just, I guess if you were looking for signs, there they were. And rumors were off to the races. Soon, Jeanette's body was said to have been found on top of a giant pentagram <sighs> painted on the ground. You know, the ground that's just branches and stuff. Uh-huh. Cool, cool, cool. And that there were dead animals all around her, hanging in the trees, gutted. Oh there were God. hundreds of small wooden effigies placed around her body and an upside down cross hung from the tree above her head. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it got out of hand. I mean, these crime scene photos must have been so wild to see in the newspaper. <laughs> They didn't publish any of them, of course. Yeah. yeah. Not a one. Not one. Um, And we'll, we'll I mean, I can say, we'll, I can actually <laughs> say it now. They're nothing like this. Not even a little bit like this. They're, they don't even resemble, nothing looks like a cross or a coffin or anything. There are no animals or effigies. And the little tiny crosses that everyone says were there are just like, there's just a lot of sticks. Right, right. You could go in my front yard and be like, crosses everywhere. I do. You do. Okay. Well. You know what? Way to prove a point. Yeah. <laughs> she must have been a witch sacrificed at Satan's altar. Most likely, yeah. That's what happens in my front yard all the time. Yeah. This is wild. I know. Isn't that crazy? Like, it, there's nothing. The redacted crime scene, not redacted, but like the image removed crime scene photos mm-hmm. are out there. We'll put them in the photo suite. Um, and they are property of Weird New Jersey. It's it, 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 nothing. It's nothing no. like this. It's crazy nothing like this. It just looks like woods, like deep yeah. branches and the fallen logs are like big rotting pieces of wood. It, mm-hmm. I, I can't, I don't know where they got it from. It is insane. But knowing what we all know about New Jersey at this point in time, we talked about it last week, this, it, the leap wasn't a hard one for people then to make. They were looking for it. So mm-hmm. there it was. Patty List had been a witch and look what happened to her. But surely Jeanette had friends and they weighed in on the likelihood of this insanity occurring, right? Uh, well, not quite. If we recall, Patty List's friends did all tell the cops willingly that she had been into the occult, that she liked Ouija boards, that she had a book of spells, and it all checked out with evidence found later on. So saying this about Patty List is, there's evidence. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fine. But that's not what happened in this case. Nobody, no matter how much they wanted to or how speculative they were comfortable with being, had a single fact to tie Jeanette into any kind of occulty behavior ever at all. She didn't so much as own a Ouija board or look at a book about it. Nothing. Yeah. Okay. But what's more disturbing to me than that is that most local teenagers, at least the blessed few besides her best friend that spoke to the police or the press, didn't seem to have a single fact in general to say about her. They just, it's very weird. So Springfield Township is a small community with just 570 students total enrolled at local Jonathan Dayton High School. All the local schools are named after famous residents of Springfield. It's a very common thing. So Jonathan Dayton was a Springfield resident that signed the United States Constitution. Nice. Some trivia for you. 
When I first read this story, Jeanette's story, I thought that her school must have been really big. You know, like not everyone knew her and the kids who did know her, you know, didn't know her super well. Like if there's a huge class, like a thousand kids in a class, it's reasonable to assume maybe a lot of them didn't know this girl. She got lost in the sauce. Right. And then among the kids that you do talk to, okay, fine. A lot of them believe these rumors because they've traveled through so many other channels first. Mm-hmm. All right. that It's explainable if that's the case, but it's not. In what would have been Jeanette's graduating class, the class of Dayton High School, 1974, there were just 138 students. Okay. Yeah, that's approximately the same size as my graduating class was. Same. And I knew every kid in my class. Yeah. We weren't all friends, but mm-hmm. I knew who they were and what they were about. And if one of them turned up dead, we certainly all would have had a lot to say. Right. We Yeah, there would have been something like, oh, that girl was part of the weird group. Even, yeah, but you, you could know? have like connected her or you would have had things to say. Well, I, I heard I mean, she did this. Yeah. I know she lives here. Her parents mm-hmm. do this. These people like did not have much base knowledge. Yeah. Nobody in a class that small is like a total mystery to you is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But according to the Dayton High yearbooks, Jeanette didn't even exist. I combed through them. I looked through the Dayton High School yearbooks. There is no Jeanette. There's not even a remembrance of her after her death. That's so weird. Now, they only published pictures of the graduating seniors in their yearbooks at that time. So there wouldn't have been a class photo of her, but she wasn't in any clubs. I didn't see her in candid photos. And after she died, usually if someone in your graduating class dies, there's a thing. Or even in in the school at all. They put a thing in the yearbook, like a picture and a loving remembrance. They do something. Dayton High didn't do a thing. There's nothing in there to remember Jeanette De Palma. She's listed on their, like, um, you know how there's those websites of like yearbook.com or like class, class, whatever, like connects with classmates mm-hmm. after you've graduated. Um, a few of those have like clickable things that say like Jeanette De Palma and have like a little cross after them. But that's it. She's like basically gone. That's so weird. Isn't it weird? The night- I, I do wonder though, and we'll never know. I'll, I wonder if her parents didn't want anything in there. Maybe they didn't. You know? Yeah, maybe they didn't. Maybe they said, don't make a big deal about it. We don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. But the 1973 yearbook features a multitude of clubs and superlatives, candid pictures of all of the teachers looking cool and conversational. There's ads for Cappy's Pizza, RAU Quality Meats, and the Springfield Community Players, but nothing of the horrible loss of one of their own students. I expected a flattering picture and a few words on Jeanette and that she was missed, but no, just absolutely nothing. Now, it's possible to explain this with the fact that Jeanette had transferred to Dayton a little over a year before. She hadn't been with the class as long as everyone else, but high school is a four-year affair, and she had done an entire year at this high school. And in my experience among teenagers in a small group, that's more than enough time to make an impression, a whole calendar school year. Mm, Okay, though. But so she just transferred there. She was only there one year. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I mean, if she wasn't... If she wasn't very talkative, I mean, I don't know. We don't know what she was like. Well, so. we know she was, you know, we talked about this last week. She yeah. was kind of stoic and she was, had resting bitch face. But like, right. I just very surprised. Usually you're not, you're, you have somewhat of a footprint. Mm-hmm. You have at least some kind of known entity. And I was flabbergasted that they did not mention her passing in anything. Right. She did also have some friends obviously. Mm-hmm. And she did go to parties and gatherings. So somebody must have had something more to say than just like, oh, yeah, I agree with the rumors. 
Right. It looks like they didn't, but they did. The police just weren't really making that information public. Also, where did she transfer funds? Did her family move there? I forget. They did when she was 10, but she went to a Catholic school. Right. So okay. she went to Catholic school and that I don't find, I didn't find anything about her in their yearbooks either. Um, okay. Like, like after her death. But, mm-hmm. you know, the one picture of Jeanette where she's in like a plaid skirt and we'll put it in our, right. I think we might have put it in our photo suite this we last did, week. Yeah. yeah. Well, that picture is her at her Catholic high school. Yeah. Okay. That doesn't even exist at Dayton High. Yeah. She looks like she's in a uniform. So that was there. But you can see she's just standing in a hallway in a candid photo, like looking down. I wonder if they asked any of those kids. It doesn't appear that they did. Right. I don't know any of them that were like specifically approached because they were her classmate Mm -hmm. at her previous school. So, but the others, it's not a far away school. It's in the same community. It's just a Catholic school. Exactly. Another interesting nugget about the school is that the year before Jeanette died, so the school year that she was there, the Dayton High School Drama Club did a play called The Bad Seed. It's about a seemingly perfect young girl who murders her classmate on a field trip because she covets his penmanship medal. Her mother then discovers that the girl has killed before and that she herself was adopted. And as it turns out, her biological mother was a ruthless serial killer. And apparently the impulse skips a generation. Devastated by this news and the thought that they are carrying on an evil bloodline, The mother feeds the young girl a lethal dose of sleeping pills, telling her they're vitamins, and then shoots herself in the head. That's the play they did that year. The year that Jeanette died. What a weird play. Bad girls can't be controlled and deserve to die. Case closed. A rather curious narrative for a school that watched one of their own disappear and die, only to call her a trashy runaway and then dismiss the entire thing, don't you think? So weird. Yep. Truly, you can't make this shit up. With evil women on the brain and any explanation being preferable to having an unnamed killer on the loose, it's easy to see why everybody kind of glommed on to this satanic ritual thing. Mm -hmm. In another interesting twist, there's like a bazillion of them. The De Palmas, who we know are people of extreme faith, we talked about this last week, Mm -hmm. they went to like a megachurch type situation. They swore up and down that their daughter was incredibly pious and couldn't have been involved in such a terrible affair. But, and if this is how it happened, she must have been kidnapped by these satanic evildoers and dragged out to the quarry as an innocent. Mm. Mm, That's interesting. Okay. The most outspoken third party when it came to these theories was not Jeanette's parents, though. It was good old poor man's megachurch leader, Pastor Tate. Mm. Or Reverend Tate, as some people refer to him. I don't know what the difference is. I feel like Reverend is higher up. No, I think it's the same. Is it the same? Okay. Well, Pastor Tate could not talk enough. He loved to talk. According to Pastor Tate, Jeanette was a hippie Jesus freak. His impression of hippies are people who are really into Jesus, which was never my impression of hippies. So I don't know where this comes from, but Mm. apparently a lot of hippies loved Jesus, according to him. And that was her. Yeah. He said that she had been quite pious, but recently waned in her devotion. Like she'd kind of fallen off the path with the Lord. Mm, it happens, you it know, does. leap of faith. It does. You gotta, gotta take one. He feared that because of this, she had fallen prey to darker forces. Mm, they had mm-hmm, sensed mm-hmm. that she was like, not totally tight. Oh, yeah. Well, with J-Dog you, upstairs. So. Well, it's also like once you open yourself up to other things, you leave a space for demons to go in. And they were like, I see that space. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get in there. Oh, yeah. They love to jump right in. Get in there. They did. Uh, Pastor Tate thinks that they kind of seduced her and then either managed to get her to consent to die in this ritual. She was like, yes, take me, Satan. Mm-hmm. 
or she had been tricked into attending the ritual willingly, but then they turned on her and killed her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what he thinks happened. And being devoted followers of Pastor Tate's for a long time, the De Palmas wholly believed this theory to be not just possible, but probable. So they were like, yeah, that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And on the rare occasions when they spoke out to the press, that's the theory they gave. Right. They confirmed it. They said a group of satanic people took our daughter and they brought her up to this mountain and they killed her. We have to find this group of people that murdered Jeanette. Wild. Yeah. And that really fucking puts the nail in the satanic panic coffin on this one. I mean, her parents are out there saying it too. So people yeah. are going to believe it. They're, that's Plus, it's, it's the most sensational among the theories and that's what people are going to want to print. I know. I, I wonder what they saw at this point too, because it got out so fast that it was uh, a satanic we'll ritual. So mm -hmm. it's like, are they hearing what the area looked like? Yes. And they're just like, oh shit. Because obviously if that's what they're hearing from the police, well, it's in the I'd newspaper. be like, oh We'll get God. there in one second. It's in the newspaper. Yeah. Because that's, oh the, the press didn't print things like, hey, maybe she was at a party and something mm -hmm. went down or I don't know. Other things are happening in this town. They immediately yeah. just printed like Satan worship. Yeah. Oh, I, re and I read the first newspaper one. And that was did, printed yeah. like just a few days after she was discovered. Right. That was right away. Right. But what's insane to me, though, is that they didn't see any photos no. before beforehand. Nope. Like they should have been brought down to the station or somebody should have gone to their house with like details. Oh, the uh, De Palmas, you mean? Yes. You know, I don't know how much they saw. I don't know if they That's saw what I mean. Like, I thought you were talking they... about the general public. The no, De Palmas, no. You know, I... Because if, if the De Palmas are getting this information yeah. from even the police, like, I mean, it was almost immediate that they were yeah. like... Now, some members of the De Palma family did go up there following her discovery. They went yeah. to see where Jeanette was found. And her cousin was like, I saw thousands of crosses laying on the ground. Thousands and yeah. thousands of them. First of all, could have just been sticks. This is days later. Yeah. Second of all, I'm not saying this woman saw something because in the aftermath of something like that, you don't think teenagers went up there and were like, what can we do? And left like a billion little crosses up there or something. Yeah. And also that to me sounds like they were already told about right. these possible, these findings. Right. And I mean, so there they was go up there and of course, if you're, if you're told something, you're going to try to see it. Exactly. No, you're exactly right. Yeah. That's so wild. So and, I guess, and again, you said that they were Catholic, right? They were Catholic, they were but Catholic. then they started going to an evangelical church. Right. Pastor Tate is at the Evangel is, in right, Elizabeth. Right. Okay, okay. Uh, and from what I can glean, this is like a little closer to like Pentecostal type situations mm -hmm. where there's like a lot of faith healings and speaking yes. in tongues and like mm -hmm. it's like intense. Yes. Catholicism mm -hmm. has its own intensity, but it's really not a pageant like that. Well, it is, yeah but it's a way more can't boring patch. <laughs> yeah, no, it can get pretty intense. Well, there you go. They're all wild. So yeah, I guess <laughs> once that suggestion has been implanted in your head, that's what you're going to see right away. Mm -hmm. So the other thing is that Pastor Tate, of course, was very outspoken about this from the jump because the police spoke to him right away. So he had this platform immediately. Mm -hmm. And so his congregation believes him as he weaved a story of Jeanette attending services and working in his coffee house for the Lord. Remember last week I said that? And in these interviews, he said that while she was at the coffee house, she worked as a counselor 
for people who were at desperate times in their life. So they could call a coffee house when they were suicidal and talk to a teenager with no experience in psychology at all. Right. Cool. That's a good thing you should do. No, thank you. Well, they still, I mean, isn't that what suicide hotlines are? Well, they're not teenagers. Sometimes they are, aren't they? No. Sometimes they have. No. I mean, well, sometimes they're college students. They're definitely volunteers, but they're volunteers who are like trained and vetted. They're yeah. not just like 16-year-olds at having coffee with the Lord. Are you sure? I feel yes. like. No, I am. Because okay. in the literature on this, it says like how patently ridiculous it was that okay. he thought that, that would be something that was okay. Yeah. I know. Um, I guess it's because I feel like I've heard of this before. So oh, yeah. But I'm sure. <laughs> let me follow up because maybe you've heard of a similar thing happening because you have more of a church circle than I do. I don't have mm-hmm. that at all. So when people confronted Pastor Tate with this, like the police, they were like, uh, it's, it's wild that you would do this. What do you mean she was a suicide prevention counselor? She was a child. And he was like, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't, I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I meant that like if another teen was feeling desperate, they could call. And then, like, our teens would read them scripture and, like, give them advice within their faith. Yeah. My blood is boiling. This is absolutely what I mean. This, okay. This so, is all right. All right. All right. Yeah. Yes. So, and they, this is a thing they do today. Right. And that's only exists in, like, religious circles. Like, if you're a counselor at a crisis hotline that's, like, nationally sponsored, you have to be trained and older. Mm-hmm. But if you're just working through your church and that's how it's given out, yeah, you could be anybody. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. It, it really makes my blood boil. Um, and rightly so. It should. So the only thing with that is like, okay, fine, you did that. But there is no proof that Jeanette even did that. He was just saying she did to make it look like they had more mm-hmm. of a connection. There are photos of her sisters at his coffee house, but not Jeanette. Okay. Yet again. Yeah, but she doesn't really seem to show up in photos. <laughs> She's a ghost. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, Lord, there. I mean, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So... <laughs> however you look at it it's all bad and pastor date's coffee house is eventually shut down for like indeterminate possibly inappropriate with teen reasons okay because i'm sitting there going i'm not gonna poke this bear too hard but i bet you there's some inappropriate shit that happened in that coffee house Mm. if you're like you know what i need to do as an adult man surround myself with teenagers Mm. there you are not okay there you are yep but the damage was already done at this point. He was like their credible guy. They're, they're like religious leader who's saying that's what happened. So people are believing it. And his congregation was not small. Um, the other thing that I hate that this congregation did, and it reminds me of, I don't remember the particular cult that did this. It might be the Source family, but I'm not 100% sure. He would send young, pretty girls out into the public with church literature mm-hmm. to solicit like, boys into coming to church with them yeah so they would like flirt with boys Mm -hmm. and the boys would be like hey let's do something and they'd be like come to church with me and meet my family and they would go yes and then they would hope they would hook these boys into coming to church Mm -hmm. i that's a cult thing i'm sorry you can't do that that's terrible they do that in every religion they tell you to go flirt with people and then like bring them to church yeah go find some nice young boys and save their souls oh my god Absolutely. There's so much wrong with that. That's why do you think they have those like get together, like a, like almost meetups, like a yeah. um, Christian meetup and little hall things. I don't like and it. It's like bring a friend, bring a friend with you. I really, I hate that so much. Yeah. Anyway, 
Aside from the theory that the devil made her do it, there was one other theory at the time that was making its way through the rumor rumor mill. And it happened in like three branches of this story. Now, I say the rumor mill, but I, it's not really in like newspapers and things. It's just people talking in the town. So the other thing people talked about was the police's pet theory that Jeanette had been at a party, overdosed on drugs, and the people she was with freaked out and left her on top of the cliff in the quarry, hoping no one would ever find her. They figured that this was an accident gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And Jeanette was just the type to go overdose at a crazy party because she partied all the time. Right. She was always partying and fucking people in cars and doing all the drugs. Right. Okay. But nobody knows anything about her. Nope. No, they'll say, I heard these things. They don't say, I know these things because we did these things together. They say, oh, yeah, everyone said. But nobody has the firsthand, like, report. So I heard these things because the cops told me. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it was that police officer that told me that. That's not bad, right? It's fine. Yeah. So a little a little fun background information, too, on this party theory. This that gives it a little credence, and this is why I kind of ex- explored it a little initially. In 1972, in New Jersey, the legal working age with appropriate paperwork was 16, 14 in some special cases. The legal driving age was and still is 17, but the legal drinking age back then was 18. So for a high school underclassman from a working class family, it was usually easier to get alcohol than a steady job and a ride to work. Hmm. Some kids had summer jobs, but not all. If their family had money, which this community was full of people with money, the kids didn't really need to work. If their family had money because both parents worked full time, the kids didn't need to work and they were left home alone in the daytime a lot. Mm -hmm. So while it may seem like a luxury to have the summer off, it also meant that these kids had to find ways to amuse themselves. And so, parties. Right. I see that line of thinking. Mm -hmm. I get it. Mm -hmm. Now, there's three ways that this whole party thing could have gone down and all three ways have their devoted fans. And the first is that the party occurred at the house of Donna Blattis, Jeanette's friend, who she stopped by her house. Remember, we talked about it last week. She wasn't allowed to hang out with Donna. Donna was grounded. She asked her mother to give her a ride. Her mother said no, and then Jeanette went on her way. But there are plenty of people who think that's not exactly what happened. They think that she stopped there because there was a party. Apparently, Donna Blattis frequently had parties. And you can find Donna Blattis' pictures all over all the yearbooks and her She's in all the classmates.com's things and everything. Okay. She was a presence. She obviously knew people. And her family did, too. And she died? No. Okay. I think she is one of the few that is still alive, but she will not talk to people. Okay. And she said, like, no, none of this happened. There was no party at my house. My family did not kill her and then hide her. I don't know what you're talking about. Because, of course, the theory is that she died, overdosed in this party, and then they hid her. Okay. So they're like, it's the Blattises. That's where she had the party. And for a while, Jeanette's family themselves was furious at the Blattises. And they they really, I feel very badly for them because I think that they were torn in so many directions by people with great conviction that certain things are facts mm-hmm. and they just weren't. Right. So for a while, they were furious at the Blattises and they thought, well, you covered up my daughter's death. Like it was you. Mm. There is no proof anywhere right, that that right. ever happened. Of course, the Blattis house completely clean. Everybody checks out all their alibis, check out. And the other thing is, um, if there were to be a house party there, and it is attended by even Mm -hmm. 20 teenagers. That's what I was going to say. Somebody would have talked. Nobody said anything? Right. Somebody would have talked. That is totally Mm -hmm. not true. Yeah. 
at least at this point, when they knew that they wouldn't really get in trouble. Yeah. Be like, yeah. You can't, I know what you did last summer, 20 kids for 50 years. That's not going to happen. Yeah. God. So that's one. The second one of the party theories is that she was at a party with the police chief of Springfield's son. He was hanging out with her. He saw her overdose. And then the police of Springfield, like the police chief, and I guess maybe some of his friends, are the ones who helped them hide the murder. So local law enforcement took her body up to the top of the quarry and made made the situation go away. Yeah. Okay. That sounds to me like, oh, you, you might be onto something. That's that would be a huge scandal. And that would certainly lead people not to talk if like law enforcement was involved that way, because they would all be, you know, possibly worried about, I don't know, whatever, being blackmailed or something. Mm-hmm. But the thing is the police chief had two sons. And uh, one of them was in another state. And the other one, I believe, was like younger and has an airtight alibi. Yeah. There's Mm -hmm. no way it was either one of these kids that was anywhere near Jeanette that night. Mm -hmm. But that's a a really good story. Right. Right. So the Mm -hmm. town loved it. Mm -hmm. I could see how a rumor mill would eat that shit right up. They're like, oh, it was an intel thing and it was the police's kids. Okay, fine. And the last of the three party theories, at least the three that I think are the most well-developed, is that the cliff in the quarry was like a hangout. Like teenagers had parties there all the time. They were always partying at this treacherous cliff in an undeveloped quarry with no roads to get there, covered in logs and sticks. So fun. Right. Lots of them. And that they had a party wherein, like I said, Jeanette overdosed and then everybody was like, dead girl, run. And they cleaned up every scrap of their party and left her there. Mm -hmm. So in that theory, she was like sitting on a log around a campfire up there. There's no remnant of a fire, so I don't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And a fire you'd see, that leaves evidence. And that she like overdosed. Again, they never say what they think she overdosed on. I, in the opening, said quaaludes because it is the 70s and that would make sense. And that's about it. Mm-hmm. If you're going to like overdose on cocaine or something, it's going to be another violent, different kind of episode. Quaaludes is like you seizure and throw up and then you go into, you go into a coma and you're done. Right. So that would appear to make sense. But toxicology found no evidence of drugs. As we mentioned, they could have evaporated. I mean, six weeks is the limit on finding drugs like that. And if it was quaaludes, they would have been out of her system at that point in time. There's no way you could have seen. Um, There was also nothing found on or around Jeanette. No other like remnants of people who did drugs or drank or alcohol. And knowing what we know of the quarry, I feel like this is insane. Right. Even when they speak to local teenagers, they're like, no, we partied at like the golf course if we were going to outside party at night where mm-hmm. it's like, you know, flat and dark and easy. Right. Yeah. I mean, I the only thought I had for the quarry was if they were partying nearby and then like a couple of kids walked off. Sure. Towards there, because that is something kids would possibly do. But I do know and I know we'll talk about him, but there is like a... I don't know, a if hobo drifter. or a drifter yeah. that that is nearby. And like, I know that if we knew there was a drifter that was yeah. nearby, we'd You're be like, going we're not going to go back here right Absolutely now. <laughs> no, you would not. No way. And the other thing that leads me to believe that that cannot be possible is, as I mentioned, on that night, there was next to no moon and it would have been dark as hell. Mm-hmm. You can't see. You're going to climb up a cliff face in the dark? 
or down it, even if you got there in the light and then you're partying up there with no light because there's no evidence of fire. Okay, but a hundred, they would have, if they were there, they would have had flashlights. Sure. They would have had them. So they would have at least been able to see that. So you're flashlight partying in like the most treacherous terrain possible. Have you never done that? No, I have not. Well, I haven't lived. You're missing out. Leslie, can you have a flashlight party somewhere where I'm probably going to break my neck so I can come? Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited. Yeah, wear your skates. <laughs> it's just as probable that I would climb up a cliff face yeah. in my roller skates at night that yeah. this happened. It just seems so strange to me. In addition to the rough terrain and the darkness, there are guards. Mm-hmm. There are security guards in this quarry. You can't. It, it's one thing to have gotten away with something for a small amount of time with just a few people, but a party on that cliff, they would have been caught. But then I don't understand if there are security guards there. How did nobody like see this? Again, it's like one guy or two guys that circulate the whole thing okay. every so often. Well, he's in on the party. Yeah, maybe he is. I don't know. It's probably Jim, and he's just hanging out. How old is the security guard? Well, according, if you guys read Death on the Devil's Teeth, which I encourage you to do, I believe it's in there. It might be in another thing I read, but it says that he was like kind of a young adult. And he was a bit developmentally impaired, according to Ed Kish, our favorite source. They were probably nice to him, and he just let them have parties. If that was a thing. Possibly. But that, I that just, could also... I genuinely don't think that this happened. It's so hard to get I don't know. I'm there. just imagining my friends and... It's also 400 yards from been. the road. You have to go deep in to get yeah. to it. Yeah. How could you even You're find committed. your way out? You're committed. All you right. have a couple of like Eagle Scouts. Okay. You're good to go. I mean, I guess. Flashlights, Eagle Scouts. You're layering the whole floor with these crosses to get in and out. <laughs> to cover your tracks. That's Absolutely. what they did. They just put all the crosses Absolutely. down so nobody saw footprints. And then after you do your sacrifice. <laughs> oh, so now we're doing it. Sac- okay, I got it. Yeah, then, uh, I mean. Then you fly you off created, into the distance after yeah, you yell, you just bat. Go bat. <laughs> Um, that, or also, like, you can summon a light to help you get out. Clearly. Also, but, like, and I mean, they're Satanists. This is their woods. Yeah, but they would have fire if they were having a sacrifice. What Satanists don't have a fire? These are crummy Satanists. It It's one of those ones that just comes up. And it's bloodless? And, and they go away. A bloodless sacrifice? They drink the blood. She wasn't drained of her blood. They just didn't spill any of it. I know you're really working for this. Well, I mean, they could have taken some of her blood. Guess they could have. She was a like beef jerky by the time yeah. they found her. She'd been out in the sun forever. Well, maybe they did that Santeria kind of thing where they killed <sighs> oh, the Lord. chicken. Mm-hmm. So when they killed the chicken, that killed her soul. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. 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 Um, but also, where are all their cars? This they, is on a highway. They'd have to park in the shoulder of the road. There would have been like a bunch of cars parked in the shoulder of the road. They all piled in to like two, maybe three cars. Okay. I mean, I don't know how many people were actually there. It could have just been a handful. They could have just all, it could have been one car and not noticeable. They could have rode their bikes. They could have roller skated. They They could have extreme mountain um, bikers and then rode their bike into the quarry. Yeah. Uh huh. They could have pogo sticked. (laughs) Just scooter. Just as likely. Yeah. They were on stilts. That's how they got up to the top Mm -hmm. of the cliff. They could have bat. Yeah, they batted there. That's um, what happened. Or they could have, like, floated through like Voldemort does. Like, just kind of 
I mean, what you're saying is equally as plausible as what they were saying. Yeah. So, like, anyway. I wish I was around the table with these people. I'd you would like, have had them going. Gonna, let's go. <laughs> I know. I might have, by the end of it, they'd be like, maybe that's not what happened. <laughs> you would have been like, no, no, no. <laughs> oh, I, I went all we're the way to the other all side. Night. Yeah. <laughs> we are here. <laughs> you went so far, you went all the way through. Yeah. I love it. Oh, but anyway, that's that's another one of the theories. And and as you can see by the fun banter we just had, it's, it's relatively ludicrous to think that that is like the most plausible of all options. But this did create a town divided when it came to this issue because everybody believed something outrageous. They all had their outrageous theory to talk about because it's way more interesting to do that. But the truth just never came. So then how and why are we talking about this now? If it just evolved into, you know, nothing is true and we don't know what happened. How did it come back? Well, it's all thanks to Weird New Jersey. Hmm. Yeah. In late 1997, Weird New Jersey received a letter from a fan because they asked for that. They asked for submissions and like, hey, what's weird? Tell us what you want us to like talk about. So one fan wrote in. The letter was entitled In the Wachung Mountains, and it read, quote, There was an alleged ritual sacrifice, I think, in the Hudai Quarry near Springfield. A local dog brought a body part home to its master, which led to an investigation. I don't know if it's true or if it's just a local myth. Now, there is also a story about how the Marks were, like, dropping off cases of Weird New Jersey, because they're this very, like, grassroots publication. Like, they... Take, and again, who are the Marks? Uh, the Marks are Mark Moran and Mark Skarman, and they are the um, editors of Weird New Jersey. They started, okay. they run it. And they, and like I said, guerrilla operation, they used to do everything. So they'd be carrying boxes of copies to local stores mm -hmm. to distribute. Um, and they did that, and they would, you know, shoot the shit with people who were behind the counter, and they did this at one place, and on their way out, they're like, hey, let us know if you have anything weird. And the guy was like, well, there was that girl that they found on an altar in the quarry and they're like I'm sorry what you know like that's very interesting <laughs> yeah, that's very weird oh um it's a very casual way to bring that up but that was enough for weird New Jersey's uh, Mark Moran who began on the long and winding path to discovering much of the sad truth in this case it was buried under a pile of witchcraft but after a lot of digging it was there enough of it According to Weird New Jersey's last update on the case, quote, when the editors of Weird New Jersey began their own investigation into Jeanette's unexplained death, they were immediately met with resistance from the local police who claimed that all files and evidence relating to the De Palma case had been destroyed during flooding from Hurricane Floyd in 1999. So this is a fun twist. When they said, can we see the case? Because anybody is entitled to do that under like the Freedom of Information Act and stuff. You can say like anything that's was publicly logged. I want to see it. And they said, oh, sorry. Everything in that case, the, the building flooded at like nine foot of flood water and it's gone forever. Sorry. Oh, that's too bad. Oh, but also not true because mm. the box of evidence in the pictures that Weird New Jersey has provided in Death on the Devil's Teeth, it's a pretty intact box. Right. It says De Palma okay. on the top in Sharpie. And inside is all of the evidence they collected and also all the files. So um, it wasn't disappeared. We're not really sure why they said they really stuck to their convictions that it was. Mm. Um, I think we do talk about this with Jesse in his interview a little bit. So you guys listen for that next and you can hear more about that. But um, it took them a while to actually get to see anything. But they did eventually. Back to the quote. 
Today, we finally know that to be untrue. After a decade of working with Weird New Jersey correspondent Jesse P. Pollock, who co-authored with Mark Moran the definitive book on the De Palma case, 2015's Death on the Devil's Teeth, and the subsequent new release of the new edition in 2022, and Jeanette's nephew, Ray, Weird New Jersey, has finally obtained copies of Jeanette's case file from the Union County Prosecutor's Office. After years of denials from previous citing prosecutors, Pollock was able to consult with former UCPO Director of Communications Mark Spivey in 2019 to submit a detailed file request under the New Jersey Open Public Records Act and the Freedom of Information Act. Which means, at this point, Weird New Jersey has the entire case file. And nothing in it says a single word about Satanism, the occult, or even an overdose. Just doesn't exist in the fact portion of the files. Okay, so that's weird. Yep. Those things were not even the most convincing leads at the time. Oh. They're just what people talked about. Crime scene photos reveal a deeply wooded area with fallen logs and sticks littered about, but no crosses, no coffin, no animals, no pentagrams, just Jeanette and the contents of her purse, which were compact, a hairbrush, a lipstick, a Vicks inhaler, a bottle of chloracetin tablets, which are like cold medicine. It's over-the-counter stuff. And that's it. Hmm. And she was missing the actual purse that contained the items and her gold cross necklace. Okay. It looks kind of like her body is in the wake of a storm, like a storm that happened a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's like a lot of tree limbs. Mm-hmm. It's not unlike what my property looks like when I moved into it because right. it just hadn't been tended to in like a great many mm-hmm. years. So there's there was logs like that everywhere. Yeah. And like you said, it's not an area that people, there wasn't a trail. People didn't go hiking there. Right. Exactly. So like nothing would get cleaned up. That's exactly. just where things fell. That's and where they lie. There they were. Mm-hmm. So, but what struck with me the most about these photos, and you guys will see them too, is how small Jeanette looks. There isn't a space cleared for her. There isn't a space cleared for a party. It's just her little body laying there alone and the enormity of nature. Mm-hmm. That's it. And as for rumors, well, the police, as it turns out, did speak to a good friend of Jeanette's, a woman named Gail, the one who Jeanette was supposed to be meeting up with the night she disappeared. Okay. So there's a long interview with Gail. Oh. Yeah. And if you listen to the podcast version of Death on the Devil's Teeth, you can hear, I believe they do air an interview with Gail. Like, mm-hmm. um, Jesse Pollock spoke to her as well. And and Gail kind of refutes a lot of the stuff the police leaned on heavily. She was like, Jeanette did not do drugs under no, no. She occasionally smoked a joint, like we said last week, but she didn't, wasn't a hard drug user. And she certainly wasn't at like a random insane party that day when she said she was going to meet me. Now, there's no way to prove that, but her one friend that is talking to people is saying she wasn't, so maybe we trust her. She also, you know, told him about, like, we were going to meet up with boys. We had plans. I'm the reason she left. She was going to hitchhike to my house from her house. Confirms, like, the whole story. Mm -hmm. And she says she knew that they were, like, Jeanette was supposed to be meeting up with run-of-the-mill teenagers, not high satanic priests. But they seemingly did nothing to demonstrate that to the public. Police weren't like, no, no, we know that she was trying to meet up with with normal kids that day. She wasn't like trying to meet up with a satanic cult. They didn't tell people that at all. And what's more, the police also spoke to a woman named Robin, who had reported picking up a hitchhiker in Summit, New Jersey, that night, who matched Jeanette's description at about 8.30 at night. Oh. Yeah. Robin said she was driving through like the center of town, 
she saw a young girl with her thumb out. She pulled over thinking like, I'm going to do a good deed. It's going to be a good story. Hitchhikers living on the edge, you know. So she picked up Jeanette, who looked very nervous and little. She kept saying she was little. So I knew she wasn't going to bite. Like we weren't going to fight. She was going to take me. I'd be okay. And she's kind of like funny. She's like, what are you doing out here late at night? Come on. And Jeanette was kind of like, I just need to meet with my friends. She was very like looking down, playing like nervous Mm -hmm. gestures. And so the girl was like, okay, well, I know you're not going to try and kill me because you're really tiny. So um, where do you need to go? And she says, I'm meeting with my friends, you know, by this intersection. And Robin says, okay, great. That's on my way. I'll take you there. So she drives her to this intersection. And I have Google mapped the route from point A to point B in this. And it is a, uh, a woodsy drive. It's out by the quarry. And, and everything is like, I think you have to go past it to get to the quarry, but it's like the same kind of area. It's this long country road that has just like gated woods on one side, mm-hmm. basically. But Robin drove her down to this intersection and dropped her off and watched her walk around the back of the car with her hands in her pockets. And saw across the street at the intersection, there were three teenagers standing on the corner. It looked to her like it was two boys and a girl. And Jeanette was walking towards them. Mm -hmm. When she saw that there were people that were going to receive her, Robin figured mission accomplished and drove away. She did not see Jeanette reach these people, Mm -hmm. but she thought that's what's going to happen. Right, right. Well, now we have a totally different set of circumstances. Yeah. The last place Jeanette was seen was not at two o'clock at home or at Donna Bladis's house. It was at this intersection when a, when a woman who picked her up when she was hitchhiking, as she said she was going to, mm-hmm. seemingly dropped her off where Jeanette said she was going to be to the people who said they were expecting her. Right. I, I don't understand why that wasn't anywhere. I know. I know. I'm very confused. Exactly. But no one, they like left that part out. I guess they couldn't totally confirm it was Jeanette, but she's, she said she gave her the same description. And later on, when you read the interview that, because they track, we're New Jersey and like Jesse Pollock, they track her down too. And they talk to her. And she's like, yeah, she was like, little girl, kind of Italian looking. She had dark hair. She's about five foot tall. She wore a blue shirt, tan pants. That's exactly Jeanette. Mm-hmm. And they're like, um, can we send you a picture of her? And you tell us if you think that's her. And she like immediately was like, that is absolutely who I picked up. Yeah, that's her. Right. But then, I mean, but also at that point, wouldn't wouldn't she have seen her photo to, like, know? I don't know. Yeah. That's the thing. I can't. We didn't have. 1972 was not the media cycle that now is happening. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, we we know that her photo was in the newspaper. It was. But this girl was 19. I don't know if she's reading the newspaper. Okay. So, and and even if she was, she had reported it to the police. Right. So she had done everything Mm -hmm. she could do. Whatever they report is not, she can't mm-hmm. tell them to tell more people. She had already told them. Mm-hmm. And she remembered this very clearly because she keeps like excruciatingly detailed diaries and she doesn't throw the, any of them away. So she still has her diary from that day in 1972 that says, picked up a hitchhiker. Mm-hmm. So it's there. Then she also goes further and says she was sitting in a seat and she was like fidgeting with, I think like she had like a necklace on. I think it was like a cross or something. She was playing with it around her neck. That is like, that's, that's her. Right. Down to the last little thing. But they, I don't know why they don't use this more. They just don't. Why aren't you tracking down those, who are those boys? Why aren't you like tracking down Gail a little more? Yeah. I know. This is wild. It is. 
So anyway, we, now we have a completely different timeline mm-hmm. and that never gets to the public. And although this does match up with the plans that she had made with Gail and that Gail told the police they had made, mm-hmm. Gail claims to have never met up with Jeanette that day. Did she make it to that corner? She doesn't remember. Oh. And say, she doesn't say. And she doesn't remember the boys' names? No. Eventually, they track down one of them and he is, of course, dead. Right. So how is it that Jeanette almost made it to what seems to be her destination and then just evaporated into thin air? Robin probably drove her right to the Satanist. Robin probably was a Satanist. I'm just kidding, Robin. You are absolutely not. That is just a joke. It is not even a good joke. If anything, she's like a freaking hero. It's amazing. Well, Satanists are wonderful. They are actually wonderful people, so, but not the kind of Satanists. We are, indeed. Technically. That's right. (laughs) For religious exemption and and kindness purposes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're kind people who work for their community. They're humanists, basically. They are humanists. So then, if that's the case, what are the theories that we don't talk about? Well, there are, I think, about three working theories that are not widely discussed that really were, in in what I can glean, the only things worth following up on. These theories that people don't talk about are like, oh, yeah, these are the things that had legs that they were exploring, which I guess makes a little bit of sense in that police often won't want to release details in case they arrest someone and they need to give them Mm -hmm. those details. Fine. Okay, here they are. The first is that a drifter named Red Kira lived in like a concert hut in the quarries. This guy's deal is that he was a caddy at Baltistral Golf Course, if I pronounced that correctly, the local big golf course where people did apparently party. Mm -hmm. And this guy was like known. People saw him all the time. He caddied and he was like kind of shaggy looking and he lived in a hut in the woods. Some local teenagers said he would like buy weed for them occasionally. They all called him red. They all knew, it's not like he was like, No one ever saw him before. He was a known entity. Okay. And so they said, well, like, this guy's living in the woods. Maybe he he did it. And there were a lot of people who suspected it was him. Mm -hmm. Or he would have seen the Satanists. Yeah, he would have been like, there they are. Yeah. Nope. And what's funny is the newspaper actually did pick up on this lead. There is a newspaper article about it. It's just not something the internet picked up later in life. So here's the article. Uh, This is from... I think it says January 19th, 1973. It says, Springfield, police here have issued an alarm for a drifter known as Red Kira in connection with the mysterious death of 16-year-old Jeanette De Palma three months ago. The girl's body was found September 19th, 1972, atop a cliff near the Hudai Quarry here. She had been missing for weeks. According to the police bulletin, Red Kira is wanted for questioning only and no warrant has been issued. The wanted man is described as white, about 46, thin build, 140 to 150 pounds, reddish, short hair, and ruddy complexion. He reportedly works as a caddy on golf courses all over the country and in the southern states. The police alarm says, quote, he builds shacks near the courses and neatly tears them down when he's ready to move on. He is said to travel by bicycle or bus. He was last reported in the Springfield area the first or second week of August, 1972. Although police have never ruled Ms. De Palma's death a homicide, the case does have bizarre overtones. And it goes on to talk about all the Satan. But so what caddies would do at golf courses is that they they did things like the police, like they report in this article. They would bounce from place to place. It was good money and it was things that were like in cash 
Mm-hmm. So basically they they could make money and then bounce on and do it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And this was like golf season and he was there at that time. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in addition to the press picking up on it, police really latched onto this theory behind closed doors. I mean, a lot of them really thought Red did it. They so suspected that it was Red that they issued uh, wanted posters. And those posters read... Description of subject, sex, white male, age approximately 46 years old, weight 140 to 150 pounds, build, thin, hair, reddish, complexion, ruddy. The above sketch closely resembles, so there's a sketch too. The sketch though looks like it could be literally anyone. Uh, The above sketch closely resembles a suspect wanted for questioning by the Springfield Police Department, Springfield, New Jersey, 07081, in connection with the suspicious death of a 16-year-old white female, Jeanette De Palma. The suspect has given and used the name of Red Kira in the past and is known to work as a caddy at golf courses. Suspect is a wanderer and travels throughout various parts of the United States, usually the southern states, on foot, by bus, or by bicycle. Suspect usually lives in a shack that he will construct in a wooded area near the golf course, like the quarry, uh, that he is working out. When he leaves that location, he dismantles the shack in an orderly manner. Suspect left this area during the first or second week of August 1972 and has not been seen or heard from since. Hmm. This wasn't someone who tried to stay secret. Other golf courses knew who he was and saw him. There are no warrants issued at this time, but he is wanted for questioning. Okay, so this golf course that the kids party at sometimes is near... The same golf course that he worked at. Right, is the Mm -hmm. same... Golf and it's, course, it backs but it's, up, but it backs up. It's yeah. like near this quarry. Yeah. So yeah. again, it's not, it's not wild to me that. And if they get weed from him, maybe some people know exactly where to go in and out. They of. do, and that is what some police kind of suspect. Allegedly, police eventually did speak to Red a few years later and decided mm-hmm. to clear him. And there is no word as to why or if this conversation even actually happened, because there's no record of it. It's okay. just something people talk about. Some local police believe that Red killed Jeanette accidentally when she was walking up the first hut to like maybe get weed or just taking a walk through the car quarry. Like it was light out and this mm-hmm. is like an innocent situation. One cop says he thinks she like squatted down to pee because she was taking a walk. And then Red saw her and didn't know what she was or who she was and got scared and like fucking grabbed her and choked her out. I don't know what this drifter is. Maybe he had a hair trigger. We have no idea. But they, uh, and anyway, everybody's theory about Red is not that he did it on purpose, that he didn't know what he was doing and he ended up killing her. Mm. Some people have linked this to a sexual assault, though Jeanette's autopsy did reveal that there was no evidence of sexual assault at all. Okay. So um, probably not. But they also think that after he accidentally killed her, he was not just scared, but also sad and wanted to put her somewhere beautiful. So he put her up on this cliff surrounded by... I know, I don't Mm. like this one either. Like he put... And then, so he like kind of pushed the logs a little bit so that she was protected and surrounded and was just kind of like, that's all I can do. I don't know who you are or what to do. And just like left her there. Mm. That's the status. I know. It's so sad. Is this possible? Of course it is, but we'll never know. Years later, in 1980, Red was found dead just 12 miles from the quarry, hanging out the, hang, like half in, half out of a window in a dilapidated house. Oh. Mm-hmm. I think they believe his death to possibly have been a suicide. There's no, but there's no, we don't know. We, we just don't know, know he was like, dead. 
No, it was just hanging half outside like, a window. Like waist touching the frame, like hanging outward. Yeah. Yeah. We don't know. Ugh. God. Ugh. I know. There's a lot of bad juju in this. There are other theories that line up also with other girls who died in the area because, shock, surprise, there were other dead girls just oh. kind of pile it up. Wait, what? I know. I know. The first is uh, that a man named Otto Neil Nilsson may have done it. Now, I think Otto Neil Nilsson's case is so freaking interesting that we are going to talk about it in something, whether it's postmortem or we go and do a special on it for our patrons. His case is bananas. Okay. But I'll give you like a little Reader's Digest. Just eight days after Jeanette's disappearance, another local woman named Joan Kramer disappeared. And according to the New York Times, quote, Miss Kramer, 24, daughter of a wealthy food executive, left her father's house on August 15, 1972, following an argument with her fiancé. Now, I think research reveals that it wasn't her father's house she left, but I'm not 100% sure. Um, doesn't matter. Three weeks after she disappeared, her nude body was found in Union Township. An autopsy showed she died of manual strangulation. Hmm. Same kind of thing. She was just ended up naked. A local accountant and Sunday school teacher who had fallen into the depths of alcoholism and mental illness named Otto Neil Nilsson was convicted of the crime. Back to the New York Times, quote, the main prosecution witness was Mary Collado a 53-year-old widow who was returning home from a local tavern on the fatal night. Mrs. Collado passed the spot where the state contended Mr. Nilsson picked up Miss Kramer, who was attempting to hitchhike to her family's home. So the thing with Joan is they said that she stormed off after a fight and then she was trying to hitchhike to get back. She was like, I went all the way out here and she like called a friend from a payphone, and then she was like, I gotta, I gotta go back. Mm -hmm. And she was, this is like a well-off beautiful woman in an evening gown, by the way. She was at like a fancy dinner party. She okay. wasn't, yeah. Okay. So then Mrs. Collado identifies Mr. Nelson as the man she saw pick up a woman that night, but she can't really describe Joan to a T, but it's enough. Um, and Otto Neil Nelson gets convicted and then eventually his appeal goes through and he gets released. Hmm. And then after that, he ends up doing some wild shit where he holds more people up at gunpoint and gets taken to a mental institution. Ooh. He is... So much. Um, and again, we'll talk about him way more. But you should read or listen to Death on the Devil's Teeth for the whole story, too, because um, Jesse tells it really brilliantly. But he fits the bill exactly when it comes to Jeanette's murder. This is someone who was strangled, taken as a hitchhiker, left out somewhere else in like a... a, a he was left in a park, I think, but it's still like an open area. Mm -hmm. And um, and her body is found later. Okay. The same kind of MO. Yeah. So um, there's also like weird links because... I think he was like in in jail at some point, and then he ends up like the, the the a family member of Jeanette's like gets a knock on her door, and she thinks it's him. There's like weird connections to him, but no hard evidence. There's just weird connections. Okay, but that's got more legs than maybe it was Satan in the woods, you know. Mm -hmm. Lastly, we have a real bombshell, which is why we put off doing this case for so long. We announced it when we did John List, and then we went to have our interview with. Jesse Pollock, and he said, listen, there's a revised copy of this book coming out in like a month and a half, and there is a lot of information in it that you're going to want to tell your listeners, so maybe we should wait until it's released. Yeah. And we were like, okay, we trust you. Okay, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> we're going to wait. And he was right. We definitely should have waited because this one's a real bombshell. Serial killer Richard Cottingham, also known as the Torso Killer, is the most likely suspect in this case. Bonkers. Yeah. What? 
Yeah, mm-hmm. there was this serial, serial killer. killer. Yeah, he was just wandering around North Jersey at that point. It was the 70s, so they were like all over the place. Right, that was their thing. Uh-huh. According to Death on the Devil's Teeth, now I'm going to give you guys, um, these are quotations, but it's like snippets like put together for the sake of conveying the story. Okay. Read the extended version. Read it, read it, read it. We will give you links. You should do it. And if you don't like reading print books in your hand, there is an update on the podcast where he tells this part of the story. So you can have it in audio as well. Quote, while the heinous murders of Jeanette, Joan Kramer, Carol Ann Farino, Marianne Pryor, and Lorraine Kelly, those are other local girls besides just Joan Kramer, who also were found dead, were not notably bloody or gruesome, Cottingham, a Bronx native living in Lodi, New Jersey, was arrested in 1980 and imprisoned for the abduction, drugging, rape, torture, murder, and dismemberment of several women during the 1970s. In some cases, he severed his victim's head and hands. Now, I'm not going to get into Richard Cottingham because we're going to cover him in a whole episode in the future. He is a whole-ass serial killer. Mm -hmm. But suffice it to say, he killed in a horrific manner and then in an incredible plot twist, began later in life confessing in his jail cell to a bunch of murders he hadn't been charged for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In 2010, he pleaded guilty to the 1967 murder of Nancy Vogel. In 2021, he pleaded guilty to the 1974 kidnapping, raping, and drowning of Lorraine Marie Kelly and Marianne Pryor. He also confessed to three murders of New Jersey schoolgirls in 1968 and 1969 in return for immunity from the prosecution. Now, these killings, the three schoolgirls, they are more in line with Jeanette. They are girls found outside, dead, strangled, who were like similar to her in appearance even down to the fact that they wore gold cross necklaces. Were they raped? I don't think so. Okay. I think they were just killed. Okay. So back to Death on the Devil's Teeth. Quote, The sheer brutality of these murders made Cottingham an unlikely suspect in the killings of Jeanette De Palma, Joan Kramer, and the other young women being investigated for this book at the time. But his confession in the murders of Blaze, Velasca, and Harp changed things significantly. So they are, I guess... They're the girls and they're the other ones that are, I think they were found like tied up, dead on outside, strangled. Okay. Um, and I don't know if they were sexually assaulted, but even if they were, there's an explanation for why Jeanette wasn't. And we're going to get there. Okay. Like Jeanette, Blaze and Falasco were both strangled. Oh, here we go. And left in a wooden area and both had last been seen wearing a crucifix necklace. Once Cottingham's confessions to these killings became public in 2020, much more serious consideration was given to him as a possible suspect in the murders of Jeanette De Palma, Joan Kramer, Carol Ann Farino, Marianne Pryor, and Lorraine Kelly. In March of 2021, after an introduction was made by criminal justice historian and author Dr. Peter Vronsky, PhD, Richard Cottingham agreed to speak with Jesse Pollock, the co-author of this book. Pollock, who deliberately kept his questions vague so as not to coach or influence Cottingham's answers, asked if the 74-year-old serial killer recalled picking up a hitchhiker in the Union County area in August of 1972, murdering her and leaving her on top of a big hill inside the woods surrounding a a rock quarry not far from Route 22. So he's Mm -hmm. like, hey, did you maybe do this? Quote, from his prison cell, Cottingham replied, quote within a quote, I will say this much. I am very familiar with Route 22, and I think I know the area you are talking about. I did frequent that specific area on occasion. Hmm. I used to pick up a lot of hitchhikers, and I was very active during that time period you have mentioned. Now, the significance, still within our quote, the significance of this statement cannot be understated. 
This was the first time Richard Cottingham had ever admitted to being active in Union County, let alone during the summer of 1972. There are only two unsolved Union County murders from the summer of 1972, and they are Jeanette Palma and Joan Kramer, who was abducted in Essex County, but likely killed in Union at uh, Elizabeth River Park. Like I said, she was found at a park. In response, Pollock showed Cottingham three of the highest quality photos of Jeanette Palma that survived today and asked if she looked familiar. Cottingham replied, quote within a quote, all I can safely say is that she is definitely my type. In fact, she's a dead ringer for one of the girls I recently admitted to. I know that these types of cryptic answers must be driving you nuts, but there are more eyes on a person in jail than you would believe. Shortly after his initial correspondence, Richard Cottingham made a startling confession to outgoing Bergen County Prosecutor's Office Chief of Detectives Robert Anzalotti, who was retiring in a matter of mere days. He confessed to the murder of Marianne Pryor and Lorraine Kelly, which Anzalotti had long suspected Cottingham of perpetrating. While the murders of two teenagers would often come up during conversation, Cottingham always stopped short of directly confessing to the crime. But finally, on April 14, 2021, Cottingham agreed to formally confess to the murders as Cottingham told Anzalotti that he had picked up Marianne and Lorraine while they were hitchhiking, then drove them to a motel where he proceeded to beat and rape them for several days before drowning them in a bathtub and dumping their bodies near the Ridgemont Gardens apartment complex. During their next conversation, Cottingham pressed Pollock for more details to help with his ostensibly fading memory. Pollock told him the hitchhiking girl in question had started her day in Springfield trying to get to Berkeley Heights and that she might have even made it there at some point because where Robin dropped her off at is in Berkeley Heights. Pollock also mentioned that this hitchhiker likely bailed out of her abductor's car. Now, this is the theory he came up with and introduced and fled into the quarry woods where she was strangled at the top of a hill and left face down. Pollock also mentioned that these woods were across the street from a golf course. When asked if any of this sounds familiar, Cottingham replied, I can say this, a lot of what you tell me is familiar. The problem is that I don't have an immunity deal yet with Union County. I have such with Bergen, Essex, and Passaic. I have to be extremely careful at what I say. Everything is subject to scrutiny and can be recalled at a much later date. Considering Cottingham's concerns, Pollock offered to reach out to the Union County Prosecutor's Office to see if they would be willing to grant him immunity in exchange for speaking on the record about his possible involvement in the murder of Jeanette Palma. Cottingham responded by saying, quote, there are several things that Union County would have to do for me, only one of which is the immunity deal. There is no sense going into the others unless, uh, unless and until Union County agrees in principle on giving me complete immunity for any particular crime we may discuss. If the answer to that is yes, there will be several following conditions. When asked what the conditions Cottingham had in mind were, he replied, Union County will have to understand that I do not talk to detectives here at the prison. It causes too many problems with other inmates because of the fact that I am in a wheelchair and have to be pushed by another inmate to the room where they hold such conferences, along with those snitching to prison officials. Plus, I would expect a good steak dinner out of all of this. Ha <laughs> ha. Shortly after this meeting, Richard Cottingham collapsed in his prison cell and was hospitalized. He remains in the extended care unit of Southwoods State Prison in Bridgeton, New Jersey, to this day, and there is no public update. That's so frustrating. So that he was like right, right there. Right. And then now he can't talk. Right. That's so wild. Do, would you believe him, though? I don't know. Because I, I, like, I feel like that's, they're just waiting to have a written statement or like an like a actual statement of him confessing. Yeah. But I don't know that 
I don't know. Now, there are other people that knew him that say they didn't feel that he was a confession killer, like someone that was looking for opportunities or, yeah, or was playing yeah. Ted Bundy, just bones for time, bones for time. Because here's the thing, Richard Cottingham is 70. Yeah. I, I don't know if he's ever going to see the light of day, even if he doesn't get convicted of any other crimes. But maybe, I mean, he's and getting unhealthy. to talk to people and he's getting mm-hmm. steak dinners. I don't know. You are correct. There is that. And I, I said the same thing. And we go into it a little bit in our interview where I, I just don't know if I would believe him. I mean, this is not a person that is like trustworthy. I think what's hard too is that so much information was given to him yeah. Yeah. about it mm-hmm. that it's like, I wonder if he'll have something else that he can remember, like recall, you know, that might jog his memory that would be like different. Yeah. Yeah. Now, there are still a lot of what about, what about, what about, mm-hmm. if that is what happened. Yeah. And if you ask me what I think. Holly, what do you think? My narrative in the first part of this case is exactly what I think happened. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. I waited until now to tell <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think that she got... Oh, in part one, you mean? Yeah. You're... Okay. Oh, no, not the second one. like, really? Oh, no. <laughs> okay. No. It was fun to write because it was so yeah. dramatic. It was like yeah. being in some crazy cop movie in the 70s. Uh-huh. But no, that's not what happened. No, the first one. I think that Robin dropped her off. She watched her walk some and then drove away. And that either her friends didn't notice or they looked up just in time to see somebody grab her and pull her into the car. And I think that if somebody saw, only Gail saw. I don't think the boys saw because Robin said the boys were like horsing around. They were like rolling around and fighting with each like other. Like they or do. Yeah. Like we learned in Twilight. Yeah. Like, it's just horse playing. Yeah. Like werewolves. <laughs> yeah. Maybe they were werewolves. <gasps> what? Solved it. Um, That's why but they yeah. the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But like if that was the case, they would have been occupied with something else. Gail would have been looking and she would have watched her best friend get kidnapped by a serial killer. There is a chance that that is so traumatic you don't remember it. Yeah, I know. It's you and I discussed that a mm-hmm. bit, and I and I felt that one too. Mm-hmm. But I don't. I mean, they all. There's all of. I know it's all a lot. of them. Just feel like they're missing something. They are all missing something. There is a link in the chain somewhere that yeah. we are not getting. Obviously, either that or like, why? Why then did Gail and these boys not ever say yeah we saw somebody take her Mm -hmm. unless it was like well we got drunk and we left her alone on the side of the road and we don't really know what happened but then again like why wouldn't you why would you leave that part out right I know I want to know the distance of where Robin remembers dropping her off to where she'd have to walk to the quarry no, just from where Robin dropped her off to her friends, like the actual distance. Oh, like that. half a block. So that's what... Not even. Like, yeah. it's like across the street. She pulled up at an intersection, like, like if so it was... So my thing is then, like, Robin would have, I mean, maybe she wouldn't have, like, logged it, but yeah. I would have thought, like, a car would have passed. You know, like, somebody, that just seems so fast. Yeah. It, it would have well, felt like somebody else would have just been waiting. Normally... And maybe they saw Gail, maybe they, like were somewhat waiting like maybe they saw Gail and the two boys and like we're like oh maybe let me see what's going on with this situation and then unfortunately Jeanette got 
dropped off and they were like, ooh. Well, that's what I say in the in the first opening monologue too. Like, what if Robin went so fast because there's a car behind her? She's like, oh, I got to move. I can't like stay in this intersection and watch oh, this girl yeah. I don't know mm-hmm. make it to her friends because someone's trying to get by. So I'm just going to keep going. And that someone is like, oh, fuck, and just grabs her. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, maybe... Maybe they asked her something to make her stop. Maybe. I don't know. Also true. They could have said something and she slowed down. Like directions or something. Yeah. yeah. I, that's the thing. It's it's 830 at night. It's not midnight. Yeah. And and I think the area was like kind of a developed area. I mean, like she went through a wooded area to drop her off at like a more of a, mm-hmm. like where there are houses and stuff. Right. So I, I don't know. And also whenever you hear about these sort of kidnappings because it's not the only time someone has been grabbed from a car it happens everybody or grabs like in a crowded room or something Mm -hmm. the response that everyone says is it happened so fast it happened so fast it was like I blinked and they were gone I can't believe how fast it happened so thinking of that I'm like Yeah. yeah it is a crime of of quick opportunity and if you were somebody like Richard Cottingham who looked for young girls and opportunities, mm-hmm. then yes. And then further, Jesse suggests this, and, and it makes perfect sense to me, he would have gotten Jeanette and perhaps he had not locked his doors. And she fought her way out and ducked and rolled out of the car by the quarry and ran up into the woods. He would have then parked his car and followed her. You can't leave her after he, she sees you and you've kidnapped her. You know, she tries to get away from him, climbs through some treacherous terrain up to the top of where a cliff is, because that's, you know, you think he's not going to get you up there. Then you run out of options. He catches you. And then instead of doing his normal torture kill business, he's like, I just got to kill this girl. She's a liability at this point. She's already escaped once. Mm -hmm. So he strangles her and just leaves her. Right. So she wouldn't have been sexually assaulted or right. or tortured or any of those other things because maybe the security guard was walking around maybe. and he didn't have time. Maybe. And also, I think the second she ducked out of the car, his plan was over. He's like, yeah. oh, shit, well, I can't do any of this. this is just, we got to be done. She's in the woods. I can't find her. I, I don't have any of my stuff. I'm not, I'm just, she's just done. Right. I'll okay. find somebody else. So I, I feel like she was just like, if she had not done that, she probably would have ended up in a hotel room like those other two girls. Yeah. She wouldn't have survived. It would have been way worse for mm-hmm. her. But like, I feel like that was the plan and it got interrupted. Yeah. Oh, and that is it. This is wild. Um, mm-hmm. It's it feels very different, but it also reminds me a lot of. Um, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry because I don't remember her name, but Anand Saeed. Oh, case just a little bit yeah. of like it's just such weird happenings. And I, I mean, with this one, we don't have like one person that we're pinning it on mm-hmm. necessarily, but it's just like these like weird little things where you're just like. None of this feels right. None of it is the right answer. It's all in of there. these kind of fit yep. so well too. And then the weirdest answer, which could just be like a serial killer. Yeah, that's the hail mary that like, comes in. It's yeah. wild, and you're just like, wait, but like that. That feels that feels weirder than like Satanist almost. It does. <laughs> it it absolutely does. <laughs> the most plausible options in this case to me, if you were to say. I threw all these on a table. You don't know anything about the case. Which ones do you think it could be? I would be like, well, either she OD'd at a party and people and her friends freaked the fuck out and dumped her. Or it's this drifter that is known to live in the woods. 
Mm-hmm. That those are the two that make sense. All the other ones are insane. No, thank you. Or we did at, at first think it had to do with like a cop cover up. Well, that's the same. Like she died. She OD'd at a party. Oh, right, right, right. And it, I mean that that I mean, the cop's son yeah. gives it even more credence because if the authorities mm-hmm. helped them, yeah, yeah, nobody's going to find any evidence. The yeah. cops helped them. They're not looking for right. it. But it's neither one of those things. Yeah, which is just so crazy. So. That is the end of our like storied coverage on this case. But in a couple days, we will be releasing our interview with Jesse Pollock. And there is even more information yeah. in that. Plus, he talks a lot about, um, and I find it so interesting, and I think you guys will too, talks a lot about, about the process of gathering the information mm-hmm. that he had and how difficult it was the time period and how the hurdles they faced and how they got around them. And it's really interesting to find out how like journalists can eventually with enough tenacity get to this information that the mm-hmm. police don't seem to be using or picking apart at all. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is another reason why so many people have raised eyebrows at this case for so long. Why was all the information hidden? Why did they say it was it was destroyed in a flood when it wasn't? Mm-hmm. Why, if you read the book or any interview, everybody wishes to remain anonymous. No one wants their name attached to this. Nobody wants to talk about it. People said that the De Palmas Make them nervous that they're afraid if they talk about Jeanette, her family's going to come after them. There's a ton of weird shit attached to it that doesn't make any sense in reference to anything else either. Yeah. So this is also one of those things, and I'm going to end on this because I know we're going for a while, where um, often there is, you know, what some person said happened, what another person said happened, and the truth is in between. And the problem is that in this case, it's what this person said happened, what this person said happened, what this, there's like 20 of them. Right. So the in-between is so far gone. Right. That it's hard to find it. So in that case, yeah, finding a 21st option that is just a serial killer who drove through town, I guess maybe that is the most reasonable explanation. I know. And now he's like literally on his deathbed. Like an hour away from here too. (laughs) He's in Bridgeton. I hate that. Yeah. I will not be going there. No. No, thank you. No, thanks. Yeah. So anyway, okay. I'm hoping that he has like a deathbed confession and has a moment where he's like, yeah, these are all the names of the people I killed. Goodbye. And we can kind of close the book on it finally for anybody who's left in Jeanette's family. That's the other thing. Jeanette's parents are both dead and all of her siblings, I believe. Yeah. I don't know if her one sister might still be alive, but like. No, there's so much. There's such weird mm-hmm. things. That are mm-hmm. happening around this case. <laughs> yeah, one of her sister like drowned herself in a lake at an institution, like a hospital that mm-hmm. she was in. And I, there's there's so much. There's so much. And a lot of people think it's a cursed case because, you know, people just died all around it. Yeah. So anyway, that is all the truth we can give you. For more and like a really in-depth look, please go pick up Death on the Devil's Teeth. Yes. The book, get the 2022 mm-hmm. edition so you can read the Cottingham stuff. And um, listen to the podcast if audio is your preferred format. And in a couple of days, please listen to our interview with Jesse Pollock. It's really fascinating. And it was really great of him to take so much time out of his day to, to sit and chat with us about this case. Yes, absolutely. Um, so anyway, yeah, toast? Toast. Whew. Oh, boy. Uh, well, first to Jeanette. Yes. Obviously. And to... Our friend Jesse, who um, was kind enough to talk to us and also did like a crazy amount of work yeah. <laughs> on this case. Yes. So cheers to Jesse Pollock. Cheers. Also cheers to Mark Moran, 
who uh, and Mark Skirman from Weird New Jersey. Mark Moran is also a co-author of the book Death on the Devil's Teeth. So he did a ton of this work as well as getting the original letter and really picking into Jeanette's case, you know, whereas most people in Springfield seemed content to just let it lie forever. Mm-hmm. So cheers to them. Cheers. And anybody else? We also have to toast two new patrons this week. Woo-hoo! So we first have Kylie Bush. Kylie! Cheers! And Heather Upledger. Heather! Cheers! Yeah. Thanks, they guys. They are both best fiends. We love you, best fiends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for your support. Oh, my validation. I need it so bad. Mm, I yeah. I haven't had running water in my house in close to a week, so my skin looks like <laughs> shit. <laughs> That is a true story. And if you want to hear more about it, you can watch Host Mortem. Yes. <laughs> um, Holly, I lied to you before. <gasps> oh, no. I do have some news. What does it tell us? Okay, so we have that live show coming up, right? Yes, yes, yes. Well, over on Patreon right now, mm-hmm. we have a post about how to get VIF tickets, which mm-hmm. are very important Veen tickets. They are going to be $25 per ticket. And they will guarantee you a seat at our show mm-hmm. and uh, and also a wonderful, wonderful gift okay. from us. Guys, this is like a, like a really good gift. Yeah. It's really, like, I want it. It's really good. Yeah. Yeah. So you you want this gift. Yes. Yeah. You're going to be, mm-hmm. like, bowled over when you see it. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, worth, it's worth the 25 it's worth more than the twenty five. Absolutely, it is actually. It is. This is like a <laughs> like a crazy nice gift. So you guys are really gonna want it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so right now I have it over on Patreon for the patrons first to, uh, uh you know, yes, yes, fight yes. to the death, <laughs> and and then um in. I don't know. Uh, it's. I mean, it's almost. It's almost time. It's time. So. Yeah, maybe on the release of this, like right afterwards, mm-hmm. we'll we'll open it. Yeah. So I everybody. just wanted to give them a little time, and then if they are not all bought up, yeah, then yeah. I will release it to the hounds. Release it to the hounds. And if you want to see us in a city near you, tell us what your city is and where we can perform, because mm-hmm. we would love an excuse to go elsewhere. Yeah. I just need, I have this like burning need to go other places right now. Yeah. I've been, I've not traveled in so long. I just need to go somewhere. I know. I know. So tell us where to go. Mm-hmm. We'll go to you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready to go to Finland. I'm ready to go to lots of places. If we don't go to <laughs> California first, we're going to die. Yeah, <laughs> we have to go there first. That's first. Absolutely. All right. If we don't get to California first, we will be dead. Be dead. Okay. <laughs> That's no, not my tag. All right. What's your tag? And if we walked down the highway in 1972, just looking for a ride, and stuck out our thumb, we, we would, would be dead. dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Would Be Dead Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more. What Satanists don't have a fire? These are crummy Satanists.